here a few months ago. I think I was. Well, we are in for a good study in the Word starting tonight, one that I think will benefit each of you, one that I think will give you a new insight into the basic skill that we all need to cultivate in order to advance in the spiritual life and advance in spiritual growth. Before we get started, though, I want to take some time to go to the Lord in prayer. We've been praising the Lord through song, and now we need to spend some time in prayer. We need to make sure that we are ready to study the Word. We need to make sure that we are in fellowship. The Bible says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Whenever we sin as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that that breaks fellowship with the Lord. The believer is supposed to walk by means of the Spirit, but when we sin, we stop walking by the Spirit, and we're walking according to the sin nature. The way to recover is to simply admit to God the sins that we've committed, even those sins we don't remember, the sins we didn't know were sins, the sins we'd rather forget. The sins that we mentioned automatically cause us to be cleansed from all sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us from all our sin. So I always like to start off with a few moments of silent prayer to give us all the opportunity to focus, to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. Father, we thank you for Pastor Rose and for this church, for those believers in this congregation who have made a decision to advance to spiritual maturity, that they do not want Christianity to be simply a facade in their life, simply a social activity they're involved in now and then, simply something they do in order to satisfy some sense of guilt in their own lives. But they realize that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify you. And the only way to reach that stage where we can glorify you is to grow according to the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is our desire to be able to grow and advance more effectively. Father, we pray as we study these things this week, these promises that you have given us and the importance of the faith rest life, we pray that you would challenge us, that we may be able to more effectively claim your promises and advance in our spiritual growth. So we pray all of these things now in the name of our Savior who completely paid the price for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The topic I chose topic I chose for this week for our conference together is promises for progress. Now, the reason I chose that is because claiming promises is a foundational and basic skill every believer must cultivate if they are to advance spiritually. We have to learn how to take those promises that God has given us in His Word and then apply them to the day-to-day experiences which we face in life. And the way that we do that is through 
faith. But you know, faith is one of those things that is often grossly misunderstood. People often think that, well, we just are going to trust in Jesus. And that's just about as far as it goes. Or we're just going to have faith. And see, that faith that many Christians have isn't a faith in the Word. It's not a faith in a specific statement of Scripture. It is simply a faith in faith. We sort of get this idea that as long as you believe, you'll be okay. As long as you just trust. Well, trust what? Trust in whom? Well, you're trusting what to take place when and on what basis do you trust that? You see, trust for the Christian is not some empty, vacuous, feel-good, psychological technique. Faith for the believer is a faith in specific revelation given us by God. I want to begin our study by looking at a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now, if we were to look at the Greek grammar here, we would understand that the phrase by faith and by sight are both datives, and they are in the instrumental case, which indicates means. That walking by faith or walking by sight are contrasted with each other, and faith and sight provide the means by which, or contrastive means by which, a person may walk. Walking is a metaphor that is used to describe the progress and the process of the Christian life. So we could paraphrase this to say we live our Christian life by means of faith, not by means of sight. One of the observations we can make here is that for faith to be real, as you're walking in the Christian life, what God says is going to be more real to you than any experience, any emotion, any circumstance, any situation that you will ever face. Now, I want to say that again. Faith, when, when you're trusting God, what God says will be more real to you than your emotions. It's going to be more real to you than depression. It's going to be more real to you than devastating circumstances. It's going to be more real to you than financial loss. It's going to be more real to you than anything that you can think of in life. That's when we learn to walk by means of faith and not by sight. But we can take this to a whole new level in understanding this particular passage. Often we think of the Christian life as being operated on the basis of faith. And by that, we're using faith as a, in its verbal sense of trusting in the Word of God. We're taking the promises of God, the principles of God, and we are trusting in them. So we have this verbal idea of actively trusting in something. But we also use that word faith in another sense. We use that word faith to describe what we believe, the body of beliefs that we have, the content of our belief. We talk about someone being in the Jewish faith or the Islamic faith or what faith are you? Well, I'm an Episcopal. See, we talk about faith not in terms of the act of believing, but we talk about faith in terms of what is believed. Now, the reason I'm making this point is because I think that what Paul is saying in this verse is not that we walk by means of trusting, but by means of sight, because sight is 
represents empiricism or experience, what we see, taste, touch, feel, that which we can somehow quantify. And empiricism ultimately is based on faith. Because empiricism is really in its technical sense and as a branch of philosophy is the idea that you can come to know absolute truth, understand the mysteries of the universe on the basis of experience and experience alone. Well, undergirding that, the hidden assumption is that, that I believe that my sense faculties are accurate enough to give me all the information I need to be able to answer all of these questions. So there's a hidden assumption that man's is able through his senses to learn truth. Now let me put it up this up there in a little different way in a little different chart. Faith. Faith in its basic meaning is the idea of trust, reliance on something, or belief in something. Reliance on something or belief in something. And right away what we see here is that faith focuses on an object. It's always faith in something. It's not just faith. It is, in, this, in the verbal sense, it is always directed toward some object. And that object is what has the value or the merit. It is the object of faith that has the value. It is what we believe that's important, not the believing itself. Anybody can believe. A small child can believe. An old man can believe. Anybody can believe anything. The act of believing itself is non-meritorious. The merit is only in the object of the faith. Now, one way in which people think they can come to know truth is through reason or what's called rationalism. But what's the hidden assumption, the hidden trust, the hidden reliance there is that man's mental capabilities are such that man on his own, apart from God, is able to understand the mysteries of the universe. Man without help from anything else, just on the basis of his mind alone, is going to be able to reach out there and get to the point where he can understand that God exists and understand who God is without any other information other than what he is born with and his ability to logically think. That's what rationalism is. It's the independent use of reason. Now, the second way that we come to know truth is through experience, sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. The merit, then, is in the experience that we have, whatever it is that we're seeing, tasting, touching, feeling. If you put reason and experience, rationalism and empiricism together, that forms the basic foundation of what we know as the scientific method. Now, within the framework of the scientific method, you can learn many different things. You can get out into the world and through the use of autonomous reason, through the use of independent reason, and through the use of your independent experience, you can come up with all kinds of truths, lowercase t. You can discover all kinds of things, but you can't understand absolute truth with a capital T. Let me give you an illustration. Right out of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam and he placed him in the garden. One of the first tasks that God gave Adam was to perform an empirical experiment with the animals. 
He had to name the animals. So he brought all the animals to Adam, the animals that were domesticatable, that were, they were called beasts of the field there, if you pay attention in Genesis 2, uh, 19 and 20. He brought these animals before Adam, and Adam was to name them. Now, to name them, he had to evaluate them. He had to observe them. He had to categorize them. He said, well, this animal looks like this animal, so those two are the same thing. He had to be able to analyze all their different characteristics in order to categorize and classify the animals. In the process, Adam learned many different things about his new environment. He's operating on empiricism. If, let's hypothesize here, if God had taken him into the, into the garden to do the same thing with the vegetation, there would be many, many things that Adam could accurately perceive and understand about the environment around him. He could learn many different botanical truths about those trees. But there is one thing he could never learn on the basis of either reason or experience. He could not learn that if he ate from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, that he would die spiritually in an instant. You see, that is why you always have to start with Scripture, because Scripture gives you the boundaries. There's always something missing when you operate on independent reason and independent experience. So we have to operate on the body of truth, the content that God has given us in His Word, and not on either our, our experience, because that's been filtered through a certain grid, and there's all kinds of agendas related to our own arrogance and our own sin nature that enter into that. So we have the contrast between reason and experience, and then revelation. Faith operates in all three. It undergirds all three. But it's the source of the data that's important. The source of the information, is it from independent reason? Independent experience or revelation. See, this is where many people get fouled up in their Christian life as they start thinking, well, that just wouldn't be reasonable for God to ask me to do that. You just think of Peter saying, well, that wouldn't be reasonable for God to ask me to trust Him to walk on the water. See, he would be judging the Word of God by his own independent reason and experience. But when he put his own understanding of reason and experience at rest, and he trusted in the power of the creator of the universe and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he could walk on the water. So this is the setup. We walk by faith. That is that body of doctrine, those principles that God has revealed to us in his word, and not by sight. We, faith is not operating in a vacuum. It is not faith in faith. It is faith in the word. Now, we know this from the change I just made in the slide, a change from Revelation to the cross. You see, at the cross, the object of our faith is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The work that he performed on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. was to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, the only way that we can know that is through the revelation of God's Word. You can't come up with that through experience. You can't conduct any, any experiments that would prove that. You can't develop an understanding of the plan of salvation through the independent use of reason. You can only come to know what Jesus Christ did on the cross through the revelation of God that has been inscripturated for us and preserved for us in the... 27 books of the New Testament. So the faith itself is not what has merit. The merit is in the work of Christ on the cross because he was the perfect salvation. 
because he was the lamb without spot or blemish. He was qualified to go to the cross and at the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So all of the merit is in what Christ did, not in what we do. There's not any merit in the fact that you believed and that dumb person down the street that you've been trying to explain the gospel to for 20 years, they're just not smart enough to believe. It's not that. It's not an issue of intelligence. It's an issue of volition. It's an issue of whether or not you're willing to accept what the Scripture says about the nature of reality. So for believers, we walk by faith. That is a body of truth and not by sight. Now, we take that body of truth and we have to believe it. We have to put it into practice on a day-to-day basis. So the issue is that faith means what the Bible teaches. So we have to understand what the Bible teaches. That means that the avocation of every single believer from the instant of salvation on is to spend his life learning what God has said to him in the pages of the Bible. This is not an option. This is the drill to learn the Word of God. And that gives us an object then for our faith. We walk by means of what we believe. We do not walk by experience, reason, emotion, or intuition. The Christian life is not based on our feelings. Feelings change. One day we're up, the next day we're down. One day we're overworked, the next day we're underworked. One day uh, something good happens and we're, we feel elation all day long and everything's wonderful. And the next day somebody pulls the rug out from under us and we're down in the dumps. You can't live the Christian life on the basis of how you feel. It has to be lived on the basis of what God has said in His Word. So our focus then is how do we go to these promises that God has given us? How do we claim the promises? So we're going to understand what it means to have faith in God's Word and how we learn to rest in God's solution. Now, as we look at this, there are three stages to this practice that I call the faith rest drill. That faith, that term didn't originate with me. But it emphasizes two things. First of all, there is an active sense of trusting God, and then there's a passive sense of resting in God's provision. So we have to learn these principles. So we're going to start off with the first step, which is to simply claim a promise. This is the first step. This is when we hit some situation in life, some crisis, some turmoil, some adversity, some hardship, some surprise, some situation. And we remember a scripture, a fragment of a scripture, a whole passage of scripture, but we claim that promise. God has said something in his word, and we are going to take God at his word and apply that promise to our situation. Now, before we can do that, there needs to be some scripture in our soul. If there's no scripture in your soul for you to claim, then when that crisis hits, there's nothing for your faith to have as its object. You have to believe something. So there has to be some scripture there. And this is why I encourage folks to get involved in a some sort of plan on their own for scripture memory. Develop some sort of plan. You can do it as a family project. Husbands and wives can memorize scripture, challenge each other, do something around the table with the kids, whatever it is. I had one, one kid in my church that when he, I think when he was three years old when I first went to the church, this kid knew more Bible verses. I think he had 40 or 50 Bible verses already memorized. 
and he and his sister would have contests as to who could remember the most verses. So if you are a parent and you have young children, this is a great thing you can begin doing with them while they're young because this builds the framework of the Word of God into their thinking. So we need to think about having the Word in our soul. For example, when the Lord Jesus Christ is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and He's tempted by Satan and Satan challenges Him, how does Jesus handle the testing? He handles the testing by quoting Scripture. Now, this isn't Jesus as God handling the crisis. This is Jesus in His humanity. Now, most folks say, well, the reason Jesus could do that is He was God. Well, that would have destroyed the whole purpose of the test. The purpose of the test was to validate His perfect humanity, not His deity. To validate that in His humanity, He was trusting in God to provide Him with the strength and the power to handle any testing or circumstance that came His way. So He handled it by quoting Scripture. In Luke 4, 4, he cites Deuteronomy 8, 3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Luke 4, 8, he cites from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, he handles his problems by quoting Scripture. Now, if we fast forward through the life of Christ and come to the cross, we see the greatest crisis that Jesus Christ faced. While he's hanging on the cross... He's going through something that you and I will never experience. The perfect Lamb of God, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God, is now being made sin. All of our sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of everyone in the whole world, are being poured out upon Him during that three-hour period on the cross. God the Father is imputing to Jesus Christ all of our sins, and the Scripture says that He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now, this put the Lord Jesus Christ to the most incredible suffering and pain and turmoil. That He who was perfect became sin for us. He bore the penalty for our sin during that time. One of the ways that He handled that was through quoting Scripture. We're all familiar with the fact that when the Lord was on the cross, He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the first verse in Psalm 22. In the Jewish canon of Scripture at that time, in the Old Testament, they did not have chapters and verses. See, we would say when Jesus was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. The way a Jew would say that is he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not just say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's sort of Jewish shorthand for the fact that he said the whole psalm. Jesus was on the cross reciting Scripture and claiming promises from the Old Testament to sustain Himself during that time that He was paying the penalty for your sin and my sin. So the, the model that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ in how to face crises and difficulties is to claim promises to quote Scripture and to face life through the provision of the Word of God, not simply claiming abstract theological principles. Now, we can do that, but see, it has to be grounded in the Word of God in specific passages of Scripture. Now, of course, the second stage that we face is that we handle in, the, in claiming a promise 
is to think through the rationales. That's the reasoning behind the promise. And I'm going to show you how to do that in each of these three nights looking at different promises. To think through the rationales that are embedded in the promise. Why is it that God says He will do thus and so when we trust Him? We have to understand what the reasoning is. And once we understand that, then our soul becomes fortified with the truth that's in the Word. So we have to think it through. See, sometimes we face crises that aren't that big and are, are they're not that tough for us. And it's easy to claim the promise. It's easy for us in some situations. We just say casting all our care upon Him because He cares for us and we just move right along. And then there are other days, there are other crises that may not be a big deal for Pastor Rose. They may not be a big thing for our brother or our sister. But they are enormous for us. And every other minute, we have to stop and claim that promise again. We have to take time during our lunch break just to focus on the Word to get our head on straight again with the Word of God because it's such a major crisis. And after six weeks of that, we finally begin to reach some level of stability. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? See, this is the issue in the Christian life is learning how to trust God, not when it's easy, but when it's difficult. So we have to understand those rationales, and once we do, and that stabilizes our soul so that we're not tossed to and fro by all these emotions, then we can appropriate the doctrinal conclusions. It brings stability and rest into our soul, and we know that this promise is real, and we're resting and trusting in God, and no matter how difficult the circumstances might appear, no matter how horrible the consequences might be, we know that we can have perfect peace and happiness because God is still in control. And it's not some sort of empty, vacuous, meaningless control, like I'm just going to trust God and somehow it's all going to work out and that somehow Jesus is going to take care of everything. And, uh, and that's not Christianity. That is not what we see embedded in the principles of Scripture. Now, of course, what happens whenever we get to a point where we need to claim a promise is what? We've hit some sort of crisis in life. We've hit some sort of adversity. Now, why is it that this is happening to us? Have you ever caught yourself saying that? Why is God doing this to me? Well, I think that part of the process as we seek to learn how to claim a promise is to think about our own life as to why this may be happening. You don't want to get caught up in too much introspection and try to figure everything out because you often cannot. Sometimes we just don't know. But it helps us to have some sort of framework to know why people suffer. And the Word of God gives us ten reasons for why people suffer. So we're going to look at our ten reasons for why people suffer before we get into our verse in Isaiah 40, 31. Ten reasons. The first five have to do with some sort of involvement of personal choice and personal responsibility. And the first is Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, we all fell. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born with a corrupt sin nature. We're born with a sin nature, and at birth, God imputes to that sin nature the guilt of Adam's original sin. So you are born a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are born a sinner. You are born guilty of Adam's original sin. 
and you have an inherited sin nature. And because of that, we have all the problems, all the crises that we face in life. Everything from the horrors of 9-11 to the horrors of war in Iraq. Everything from weather disasters, such as that which just occurred with, with the hurricane uh, over on the East Coast, to personal disasters such as divorce or death, uh, financial loss, loss of a job loss of a loved one, whatever it may be, all of that is traced back to the fact that Adam made a sinful decision in the garden. Now, it's easy to get caught up with talking about Adam. One thing I like to point out is that, that Adam did not commit any of the sins that you think are so terrible. I don't care who you are, but if I told you to take out a piece of paper and write down your worst sins, whatever you thought were the worst sins anybody could commit... Adam did not commit any of those sins in the garden. The sin that Adam committed in the garden was that he ate a piece of fruit. Now, I bet eating a piece of fruit didn't make anybody's list of terrible sins. You see, it wasn't the act that was sinful. It was the disobedience to the command of God that was sinful. When the creature wants to act independently of the Creator... That results in sin. And what God is demonstrating in human history is that the creature cannot act independently from the Creator at all without bringing about just an enormous array of unintended, horrible consequences. And so when we look out there at life and we see all of the horrible things that happen, and perhaps some of you serve with um, as an EMT or maybe you serve with the fire department or police department, and you know horrible things that you have seen that people have done to other people. And many times there are folks that can't handle that when they come face-to-face with the real evil that operates in this world, evil such as we saw on September 11, 2001. They can't factor it in because they don't understand that the reality of evil as it's given to us in the Word of God. We live in an evil world, and because of that, we're going to face many different crises in life. So that's the first reason that we face adversity and hardship, difficulty in life. second reason is individual volitional responsibility. You make sinful decisions. See, it's not just because Adam made sinful decisions, and part of the consequence there was spiritual death, Genesis 2.17, but you also make poor decisions, I make poor decisions, and we make sinful decisions, and we know we make sinful decisions, and we want to make sinful decisions, and we're glad we're going to make certain sinful decisions, and the result is that we're going to reap the consequences of our decisions. Galatians 6.7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is the law of individual volitional responsibility. Many times the crises, the adversities, the hardships that we go through in life are simply the consequences of our own bad decisions. It's not divine discipline even. It's just the law of volitional responsibility. We make bad decisions from a position of weakness and we go through the negative consequences. Sometimes God gets involved because we're a child of God, and God intensifies those negative consequences. And that's divine discipline, an intensification beyond the natural consequences for the action. And we read about this in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So it may be divine discipline. Now, the promise that we're going to look at tonight in Isaiah 40.31, and a promise we'll look at tomorrow night in Isaiah 41.10, the context of both of those is divine discipline on the nation Israel. Because in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is looking into the future from his time in the 7th century B.C. He's looking forward to the time, or in the 8th century B.C., he's looking forward to the time in the, in the 6th century B.C. when the Jews are under captivity. They're under uh, the Babylonian captivity out of the land, and they're crying out to God to deliver them from the consequences of that discipline. So one thing we need to do when we face uh, negative circumstances and crises is this tied to any volitional decision that I've made. Is it somehow my fault and I'm just reaping the consequences or maybe some divine discipline? A fourth reason. fourth reason we go through suffering is because we're connected to someone involved in either two or three. We're connected to someone who is reaping the consequences of what they've sown through marriage, family, our parents make bad decisions, and sometimes we have to pick up the pieces. Sometimes our kids make bad decisions. I know none of your kids have ever made any bad decisions, but some folks have kids that make bad decisions, and the parents have to pick up the pieces. Sometimes the grandparents have to pick up the pieces. Uh, maybe through friendship, through business. You work for a company. The people in that company make bad decisions, and guess who gets the consequences? Or maybe it's a national entity, a government makes bad decisions, bad financial policies, and that affects the people in that nation. So sometimes we suffer because we're connected to someone who's involved in either two, the natural consequences of bad decisions, or three, divine discipline, and so we suffer as a result of that connection. And then fifth, the fifth reason we go through adversity is just because we live in Satan's world. We live in a fallen world system that's dominated by Satan and the thinking of fallen mankind. There never will be a perfect political system. There never will be a perfect economic system. There never will be a perfect health care system. There never will be a perfect any kind of system, educational system, social system, whatever it is. There will never be a perfect any system in this world because this is the devil's world. And because of that, we're always going to go through a certain amount of crisis and testing. Now, those are the first five. Somehow they're related to individual volition. The next five have to do with the general purposes that God might have for bringing those adversities into our life. Sixth reason. Sometimes it's a wake-up call evangelistically. Think about Acts chapter 16 when all of a sudden the Philippian jailer came in and the jail cells were open and Paul and Silas could walk out and this would mean that he would lose his life. As a jailer, he would be under the death penalty if his prisoners escaped. And so he's going through incredible adversity. This is a crisis in his life. And God used that to get his attention, and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved because he knew he would be dead before long. Seventh reason, God brings suffering into our life to teach us his word. He brings suffering into our life so that we will learn doctrine. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. See, we're sheep. That's not a complimentary term in the Scripture. 
A sheep is an animal that is completely dependent on others, is stupid and easily led around. And the reason we don't learn Scripture many times is because we're just too lazy. It's only when we go through that crisis and we're flat on our back that we're forced to look up. And it's only at that time that we're in a teachable situation where we're willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The eighth reason that we go through suffering, undeserved suffering, suffering that's not related to anything around us, is so that we can be a witness, a testimony to our neighbors and friends and those around us as to what God can do in providing power and grace for a believer in suffering. It's not about you. It's about what you can demonstrate to those around you in relationship to the power of God's Word and the power of God the Holy Spirit in your life. The problem is we're such arrogant, self-absorbed people that as soon as we hit the crisis, rather than thinking about how God is using this in the life of those around us, we immediately think of what it's doing to us. And 1 Timothy 1.16 Paul said, And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. I have a pastor friend with me this evening, and the pastor of the church where I'm now pastoring was just involved in a horrible accident up in uh, the Washington area. He was, he's now serving as a deputy sheriff, and somebody tried to run a uh, roadblock the other night that he had set up, and they hit the car, and that hit him and threw him about 70 feet off the just devastated as a result of this accident that occurred to him. Broke his leg and broke his sternum, and he was laid up in ICU. I think he gets out in another day or two. But this is going to have an incredible witness to those unbelievers who are around him. So we never know how God is using these adversities. And then ninth, to be a witness in the angelic conflict. To be a witness in the angelic conflict. To be a witness to the angels. They're watching us. They're learning things about God's grace from us. Ephesians 3.10 states, In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So when we go through adversity, one reason just may be to demonstrate spiritual truth, the truth of God's Word to the angels. And then tenth, we go through suffering, undeserved suffering, suffering unrelated to any volition around us, in order to comfort others with the truth of Scripture. The sole reason you may be going through that suffering is so 30 years from now you're going to be able to comfort some other believer who's going through that same situation. 2 Corinthians 1.4 Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, this is the purpose sometimes is to provide comfort and encouragement to others. We'll see that idea of comfort and encouragement come to play in Isaiah chapter 40 and following. For the reason that that revelation was given, that prophecy was given in those chapters, is to comfort the nation Israel. The way we get comfort in a crisis and stability in a crisis is through the Word of God and being able to claim the promise of God. Now, the promise that we want to look at this evening is in Isaiah 40, 31. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles... 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, I know that this is a promise that is probably familiar to most of you. But how do we utilize this promise? What do you know about the context of the promise? Have you ever taken the time to stop and read through Isaiah chapter 40 to see what precedes this particular promise? See, it's one thing to reach a point in our life when there is a crisis and to claim a verse and to recite the verse. And see, this isn't just a simple mantra like you would have in transcendental meditation or Hinduism where you just say it over and over again until you, you hypnotize yourself or put yourself into some sort of trance and anesthetize yourself so that somehow you're going to be able to go through this crisis because you've numbed your mind by saying the scripture over and over and over again. The purpose of the verse is to think it through. See, the Christian life is a life based on thought, based on thinking, not just emoting, not just feeling your relationship with God. So what we want to do is that focus on that second stage of understanding the doctrinal rationale, the reasoning that's in the promise and the surrounding context so that the next time we hit a crisis and we want to claim this promise, we have a better understanding of what is going on. First, we need to make some observations. For example, we see the first word, those who wait on the Lord. This is the Hebrew word kava, and it has to do with waiting expectantly, looking forward to something. It brings in that idea of hope. It's not simply believing. Now, what's interesting, I had not done a word study on this word in many years, but a lot of recent information has come to light on the nature of the Hebrew language. Most of you probably wouldn't know this, but... If you look at your modern translation, such as the New American Standard Bible, the New American Standard bases the, the words that it uses in English to translate the Hebrew on a dictionary that came out in 1919 called Brown, Driver, and Briggs. Anybody who goes to seminary learns to that book backwards and forwards. And it's the standard and best Hebrew-English dictionary available. But it's dated. I mean, it came out in 1919. There were numerous discoveries made related to the Hebrew language during the 20th century, and we have to incorporate all of that information in our understanding of Hebrew words. And back in those days, they thought that kabah had to do with, because it's similar to another word, that it had to do with weaving a rope. And you go through a crisis situation, and you trust God, and then you go through another crisis, you trust Him a little more, and you, each time you trust Him, it's like weaving another thread into that rope until eventually you have a strong cable that sustains you in the midst of crisis. And that'll preach. What wonderful imagery. The only thing is, that's not true. According to all the latest studies, the word kava has the idea not of believing but of waiting expectantly for something, having a confident hope and confident anticipation of what God is going to do. Now, that really brings in an interesting perspective in this verse because it is written as a prophecy for the Jews that are in the Babylonian captivity who are sweating it out under the Babylonians waiting for the deliverance of God as they are in quasi-slavery in Babylon taken out of the land that God had promised to them, out of the place of blessing from God, under divine discipline. And they're saying, God, when are you going to take us back? Have you just forgotten about us? And we'll see that in verse 27, they're just whining to God about all their hardships. They're not really trusting Him. And what God is saying in this verse is those who have a confident expectation 
They're looking forward to what God is going to do, not in some empty way, but as we'll see in Daniel 9, we don't have time to go there, but if you were to look in Daniel 9, Daniel studied the Scriptures, and Daniel went to the Lord in prayer and understood there was a timetable. So the information was there. It's not just, well, we're going to believe that somehow, some way, God's going to work it all out. There is a hope and an expectation built on the revelation of God's Word. So we're told, first of all, those who wait on the Lord has that idea of confident expectation. The next key word we want to address is the word renew. The word renew is the Hebrew word kalaf, which means to change or to exchange their strength. You see, this isn't simply a renewal of where God's going to take your strength and He's going to add to your strength. This is an exchange of strength. It's not your power, it's God's power. It's God's power, it's not your strength. It's God's strength. It's not your ability, it's God's ability. There is a transformation of power here. This is seen in a verse in Job 14.14, 14, where Job says, If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. See, what kind of change is that? That is a ex- complete exchange of the old for the new. Something completely new. So it has the idea of exchanging one thing for another, replacing your power with God's power. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Let's get the context. Look back a couple of verses, and this is where the Jews are whining to God. And the prophet Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. God doesn't see me. I'm in this crisis. He's off worrying about the problems in the Middle East. He's over there dealing with the nuclear threat in Korea. God's worried about the economy. He's worried about poverty in the world. Why does God care about me? See, this is a small view of God. And this is how the Jews are being portrayed. They have forgotten how powerful and mighty God is. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. God is ignoring me. Well, the response is, have you not known? I love the way Isaiah asked these questions to get their attention. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, before we get much further into this verse, I want to just point out a couple of things that you would miss in most English translations. First of all, the first word that is translated faints here is the Hebrew word ya'ef, which has the idea of being weary, tired, exhausted, fatigued, or oppressed. Now, have you ever felt that way when you've gone through the adversities of life? Just getting up and going to work all day, every day. But God is the creator of the ends of the world. What a tremendous task that was to create the entire universe. Yet, at the end of His labor, He neither faints nor is weary. He is not exhausted or fatigued. His power is unlimited. But then we have a second word in this verse... Weary. This is the Hebrew word yaga, which means to be worn out from labor, to be wasted, to be depleted, 
to be left with no resources. So there's a, between these two words, there's a picture here of a God who never tires, is never weary, who never runs out of resources. He has an unlimited ability to handle our problems. But what I, the reason I'm pointing these words out is because they run throughout this section from verse 28 down to 31, but you lose it in the English because the translators aren't consistent in translating the same Hebrew word with the same English word. So you miss the threads that run through the passage. Here's a chart here, if you can see it. I've tried to highlight the similar words in English, uh, in, in yellow up there. Notice it says, The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints, there's Yaf again, nor is weary. And then in Isaiah 40, 29 we read, He gives power to the weak. So the one who is never weak gives power to the weak. And then in verse 30 we have a contrast that even the youths, the young men, the na'ar in Hebrew, these are the young men, these are those guys we see on the news over there in Iraq who are fighting the battles. These guys are a tip-top physical condition. They're like young athletes just out of college at the prime of their power and ability. But the Bible says that even in the face of adversity these youths shall faint and be weary. That's that same word, ya'af. So we're tracing a theme that the Creator never grows weary, never grows tired. He gives power to those that do, and even the strongest among us grow weary. And then when we get to verse 31, we'll see that it, there's a switch in these two words. And the last phrase, they shall walk and not faint. See, God, as the God who never faints or grows weary... When we exchange our strength for His strength, then we will be like Him and never grow weary. In Isaiah 40:28, let's go back and we pick up the second word. I've highlighted it in pink. I'm not sure it comes through very clearly. It doesn't. came through good on the computer. It just doesn't come through on the screen. Neither faints nor is weary. That's the second word, yaga. That word is used again in verse 30. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Yaga. Same word. So you can take that, circle those two words in your Bible and link them together. And then in verse 31, the order of the words is, has been re- reversed. And Yaga is now the first word mentioned in the phrase, They shall run and not be weary. See, God neither wearies nor grows tired. He doesn't faint. He never runs out of His resources. Yet, for the person who has a confident confident expectation in the Lord, they shall exchange their strength and no longer run out of resources. Now, how do we do that? What is the rationale that takes place in these verses? Now that we understand the ideas there, what's the reasoning? Now, some of this material you would never pick up because you don't know the original languages. But you can easily pick up the rationale that's in these verses. Let's put a chart up here. This verse takes us right back to the character of God for each problem. We're reminded of the attributes of God, that He is sovereign. He is the creator of the universe. He is the ruler of everything. He is the final authority. Nothing happens apart from His direct will or His permissive will. He is righteous. In His righteousness, God sets the absolute standard for what is right. He, it is His value system and no one else's value system. 
justice is the application of that value system to his creatures. He is always perfectly just because he has a perfect value system. He is love. He is eternal life. He has no beginning and no end. He is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that could happen. He is omnipresent. He is present to everything in his creation at all times. Present to everything in his creation at all times. He is omnipotent. That doesn't mean that God can do everything. God can't make a circle, a triangle. But God is able to do everything that he intends to do. God has all power. Then he is veracity. That means that he is absolute truth. He is veracity. And then finally, he is immutable. He never changes. That relates to his faithfulness. To his faithfulness. Now let's go back and look at those verses. Isaiah forty twenty-eight. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God? What is that? That is this first attribute of eternal life. The everlasting God. He is the eternal God. None of this really surprises him. He has seen it all. He has no beginning and no end. He is the everlasting God. And then he is identified as the Lord, Yahweh. That is the personal name of God based on four letters in the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's called the sacred tetragrammaton. And it emphasizes his covenant relationship with Israel. His covenant relationship with Israel. This means that he is faithful to his promises to Israel. He promised in Deuteronomy that if he took them out of the land, he would bring them back to the land. And so by saying this is the everlasting God, the Lord, they're emphasizing his faithfulness, his immutability. So we have two attributes so far. And then Isaiah says he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He created everything, the entire universe. This is a function of his sovereignty. He is the one who created everything, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. If he has that much power, then God can certainly handle whatever crises are in our lives. He neither faints nor is weary. See, he is omnipotent. He can do all things. He does not grow weary. He is all-powerful. He neither faints nor is weary. And then the last phrase is, his understanding is unsearchable. Literally, it means that his understanding is without bounds. It's unsearchable. So here we see five different attributes highlighted in Verse 28. That emphasizes his character. This is the essence of God rationale. When we face a crisis sometimes, all you can do, if you don't have a Bible verse, just think about the attributes of God. How does God's sovereignty relate to my situation? How does his omniscience relate to my situation? You think God was surprised? You may be surprised, but God isn't surprised. He knew about this from eternity past. God knows everything that we're going to go through, and God made a perfect provision for it. Because He knew that you would face it, He gave you the tools you would need to handle that situation in your life. We think about His omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. That means that my problem may seem overwhelming, but God's power is greater than anything, any circumstance or problem we face in life. And God is always faithful. Just think your way through the attributes of God. So this gives us then 
the point where we can then come to a resting point in our conclusion. That even though everything may seem out of control, even though we may feel like our life is just in turmoil because of certain circumstances that have taken place, we know that God never changes. And as we think our way through what Isaiah says here, it's not just a matter of repeating and repeating and repeating some promise until we sort of deaden the pain. It's a matter of thinking through what God has said, the nature of ultimate reality, the nature of God and His relationship to us so that we can have calm and stability and tranquility in the midst of the crisis. So Isaiah 40.31 tells us that those who wait, who have that confident expectation because they know God's plans and purposes in history, because they understand the nature and attributes of God, they can exchange their strength for God's strength. And no matter how overwhelming the crisis, they don't run out of power. They don't run out of energy. They don't run out of strength. They are not overwhelmed by the details of life. You see, Scripture tells us that God solved the greatest problem that you and I will ever face. The greatest problem that we will ever face is separation from our Creator. Because the biggest problem we we will ever face is our own spiritual death. And that was solved by Jesus Christ on the cross. If Jesus Christ can solve that problem, then He can solve any other problem that we face. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to come face to face with an understanding of your promises and your provision for us. We recognize that walking by faith is related to the life of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it has nothing to do with coming to salvation. Father, there may be someone here this evening who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. Right now, If this pertains to you, you can determine where you will spend eternity. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. See, your belief is not the issue. It's not that which has merit. It's the work of Christ on the cross. So you're not saved because of what you do. You're saved because of what Christ did. You're saved not because of your righteousness or your morality, but because of Christ's righteousness. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes or credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's on the basis of that righteousness and that righteousness alone that you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, challenge us with what we have learned tonight about how to claim promises, that this would energize us in our own spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.